0: I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter two. We're going to read from from there, and then we'll read also just a few verses from Psalm twenty-four, as I began the service with those verses, and then we're going to jump into something a bit different today. So, Genesis chapter two, from verse eighteen. It's on page three in your Bibles, so right there at the beginning. And the Lord God said, He's just made Adam. He said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed, had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In Psalm 24, just read you verses from verse three. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation, the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I wanted to read you those verses because I think it sets the tone, the way in which we should be thinking about the subject we're looking at today, which is that of relationships and the fact that the psalmist says, look, we are called to be a generation who seek God. That's the measure against which we decide what is the right way to live. It's whether we are living with God first and foremost in our hearts, minds, actions, will, everything. So that's the touchstone. That's the way we ought to live. Now, today is obviously Valentine's Day and I thought it was providential that um, Sunday had landed on that day. It was a good opportunity to address a subject which we haven't addressed at all as a church um, since we began um, why do we need to address it? Well, when you gather so many beautiful single people in one room on a regular basis, I mean, just look at you guys. Um, eventually, you're going to run into problems and, and questions and the need to address things that um, otherwise, you know, that, that really have to do with your walk with God in a, mo- in a profound way. And so I want to just quickly answer the question why are we doing this? Well, negatively, It's because, and by the way, I've got a lot to say to you guys, so I'm going to be moving at a rapid rate today, be less inspirational, more teaching, and I'll just be moving as quickly as I can. So by all means, you can download it later if you feel like um, you haven't understood, or you can ask me questions as well. So I think at the end of this, when I finish, we'll we'll have a just five ten minutes break, and then I'm just going to stay here at the front, and if you guys want to come and sit at the front, and we'll just do some kind of Q&A discussion at the end, if you want, for 20 minutes after the service. But here we go. Why are we doing it? Well, one, the potential to sin is very great. You think about it, all the sin in your life is, is relational in the most fundamental level. So the deeper the relationship, the greater the potential for harm. And it's just a fact that it's in this area of our lives that we are prone to make the biggest mistakes and do the worst things. Then you throw in some of the added dimensions of our corrupt flesh, as the Bible calls it, our sinful nature, and particularly in the area of our sex life and sexuality, temptation, all that kind of stuff, desire. You throw in that element. You throw in also the element of culture and the fact that we live in a world that has badly got this wrong. I mean, I defy anyone to come to me and tell me that the Western world has got its head screwed on when it comes to relationships and marriage. What a mess we are in. You throw in all these elements, and what you end up with is a place where Christians are, are going to find the, it's the hardest and many, often to walk with God in a pure way, and we're called to radically be different from the culture in which we live, towards holiness, so that ought to be the measure against which we look at our lives. So that's the negative side. Positively, I would say this. This is why I read to you from Genesis 2 to begin with. The potential for good is enormous uh, when we get this right. And I mean that both in terms of being single and being married, that when we, when we seek to honor God with our sexu- sex and sexuality and our relationships, the potential for fruitfulness in your life Uh, can rise exponentially as you walk with him and honor him in this area. Marriage is part of God's creative design, the Bible shows us, that's why we read Genesis 2. Part of his plan for extending his kingdom in the world. And therefore, who, how, and when you marry is something God is very much interested in. And it's also one of the most sanctifying relationships that you can enter into. Ephesians 5 talks about um, the fact that Jesus is purifying his bride, the church, for himself and it gives us this clue that the marriage relationship can be the most powerful tool that God allows you to enter into by which he produces holiness in your life if indeed God calls you to marriage. And therefore, for these reasons, the stakes are very high and the potential very high and the possibilities, well, only God can tell what you might do if, in this area of your life. And so I want you to understand that this really... I don't think I exaggerate when I say I think that there can be eternal consequences for how we conduct ourselves in this part of our life, both in terms of our fruitfulness in this life, our joy in this life, what we do, where we go, how we live. All those things are impacted by this part of your life. And therefore, I want us to deal with it. If you are already married, please please don't tune out. Um... I'm not going to be looking at marriage today, but we're a family, right? Which means that when you have single people or dating people in your home, your job is always to be helping to disciple them as they are discipling you. That we are meant to be a family. And therefore, the more we're clear thinking on this issue, the more help we can be to one another. And if you want to have kids, even more important. Well, let's jump in. I'm going to ask three questions today which should help us just to navigate our way through this topic and sadly I won't be able to deal with anything in enormous depth but I'll do my best. So the first question I want to ask is should you marry? I do not want to assume from the outset that everyone here is called to the married life. Why not? Well, for one thing the the Bible shows us that there are people who, who are not allowed to get married. I mean by that that you may find yourself, or may already be in the situation, I don't think this is true of any of us, but it may one day be true, where if your marriage has gone wrong and you've divorced for reasons which the Bible says are illegitimate, then the counsel of the Scriptures to Christians is that you, you, you must remain single. It's a hard teaching, but it means that when you're in that condition, you have to pay all the more attention to what God wants for you in your singleness. More likely, however, is that some of us are going to be in the situation where we're in fact being called to the life of singleness. I felt a cold shiver run down the spines of many people. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's addressing the whole issue of marriage and singleness, and he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. What does he mean? He means unmarried. He was, I wish you were all like me. Why? He says, Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, here's the important thing here. When Paul says that each has his own gift, and he's talking here about the gift of being single, he uses the same word that he uses elsewhere to talk about the Holy Spirit gifts, the spiritual gifts like teaching and prophecy and miracles and faith and all these kinds of things. So Paul says that the gift to be single is a spiritual gift that comes from God, a special divine enabling for the task of living a single life to the glory of God and the furthering of his kingdom. Jesus also addresses this issue in Matthew 19. He says that there are eunuchs who've been so from birth. You remember a eunuch was a person who'd been sort of castrated and therefore was unable really to marry and to have children. They would not marry because they could not have children. And he said that there are some who've been eunuchs who've been so from birth. They had a birth defect. There are some who are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. Someone did it to them. And then he says there are also eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think he means literally and physically. I think he means in a spiritual sense that a person has decided that I'm going to sort of kill this part of my life, the desire to be in a permanent monogamous married relationship with someone. And he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So both Paul and Jesus say there's a gift, there's a condition, there's a circumstance of life in which we are called Some people are called towards singleness, and that is a wonderful and a good thing. But the interesting thing about this is that, you know, if I was to do a kind of, let's, you know, a a teaching on prophecy or something like that, and I call you guys forward and say, let's let's pray for one another, that the Holy Spirit is going to fall on us and we're going to receive this spiritual gift. If at the end of today I said, come on, guys, I want you to pray for you to receive the gift of singleness, I'd be very interested to see. if anyone came forward but doesn't Paul say earnestly desire the spiritual gifts in, in 1 Corinthians 14 so I know we make light of it but in a sense I think this is deadly serious I think there is a a rightness to recognizing yourself as a person on whom God's hand might be for the, for the, the grace of singleness and that he has a purpose in that It's a high calling and a great privilege, which the scriptures show us because there's so many wonderful, godly, single people in the Bible. I think about great heroes like Elijah and Elisha. Their lifestyle was that of traveling prophets, John the Baptist also, traveling prophets who preached to people. It did not give itself, their lifestyle did not give itself to marriage and home and raising children. So the fact that they remained single is clearly part of God's plan for them and not a a defect. It's not that something was wrong with them but rather that God had an intention for them and achieved more through them as single people than they could have ever done in their lives if they were married. Think about someone like Paul that we just referenced. He was a traveling missionary. He went from town to town. He never knew if he was going to make it to the next town because of the dangers in travel. And when he got there, he didn't know if he'd make it out. You think about that lifestyle. It does not lend itself to to marriage, to settling down, to buying a home, to raising children. Even just, you know, when you read the history books, you'll find you'll read of great men and women of God who have dedicated themselves to God in singleness. One of the pastors of all souls is a man called John Stott, who passed away not so long ago. But he lived a long and fruitful life as a single man and the rector or the pastor of a church, writing dozens of books, preaching thousands of sermons, discipling many, many hundreds of people through his ministry. And God used him mightily, and all the more so, I believe, because of his singleness. You don't have to look on this as a second-rate calling in any way. John Piper talks a bit about it in this amazing book, This Momentary Marriage, where he has two brilliant chapters on singleness. And I just wanted to tell you what he has to say on it. And he He says that one of the things a single person can do is they can show truths about Christ and the kingdom more vividly than a married person can do. And then he lists them. He gives examples. He talks about truth like the the family of God doesn't grow through um, sexual reproduction, in other words, having kids, but by people coming to faith in Christ. And single people can show that they can have spiritual children without having to have natural children. Something the Bible talks about in other places. He talks about how being single can show that our relationship in Christ, our family relationships as a church, are more eternal and more permanent than earthly relationships like the married one. He talks about how you can demonstrate to your singleness that your value is Christ above all other values, more vividly, more clearly than than a married person can. And so if you were to ask me, well, what are the advantages of singleness, I'd want to tell you some of the the ones that spring to my mind. For one thing, you have time. More time now than you would do if you were married, and even more if you are married with children. You know, after church on Sunday, often what I would just really want to do is hang out with you guys. Uh, but I've, I've got to go home, take the kids, put them in bed, and that's just part of our life now. And we, we have to adapt as a family to that. Whereas single people, you can invest your life into other people more intentionally with more time and energy. You can do all that stuff, and there's, no, there's far fewer limitations on your time. Here's another one. As a single person, you can have a single minded focus on Christ, this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, where he I reference I just mentioned this chapter to you a minute ago, but he says a little bit later on. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man about worldly things, how to please his wife. And then he reverses it and says, the unmarried woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. And the married woman, how to please her husband. In other words, when you're in a relationship, you're going to have multi- more focus More focus, I don't know how you say that in plural, but more things to focus on in your life. Whereas when you are single, you can devote yourself to Christ in a a completely single-minded way. Time, single-minded focus. Here's a third one. Availability to others for mentoring, discipleship. Here's a fourth one. It's easier to take risks. I think that's what Paul was talking about here in this chapter. I wish that you were all like me. Why? Because I can live a life of reckless abandon. Ultimately, if I die, there's no one who's dependent upon me in, that, in the way that a spouse might be or children might be. Now, I've met people who have lived like this. So I think about, you know, a couple of months ago, we took up an offering for the work of this missionary, Steph, in Lebanon, who wants to give the gospel to all these maids who are like slaves in, in homes in, in Beirut, maids from you know other parts of the world. And Steph has been in the Middle East for 25, 30 years now. Unmarried, absolutely devoted to Jesus and amazingly fruitful. And I think that her life and lifestyle is not really possible for a married woman. I admire her. I have the highest admiration for who she is and what she does. And she's not the only person living like that. It's easier to take risks. It's easier to be in a situation that's potentially dangerous for Christ and for the gospel. And I think also I'd add this fifth one. That you may even have greater rewards in the long run. You know when Jesus says to his disciples, he says that basically if you give stuff up, you get more back in return. He says... There's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who'll not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And I think he could easily have added, and the spouse. I think he could have said, you know, in your willingness to give up something which you might think of as your right. God is not going to allow you to lose out in the long run. How would you know if you were called then to singleness? Some things might be true of you. One thing, you might actually have a sense of the calling to it. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, Only let each person lead lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So it might be a sense that the Holy Spirit is saying to you, this is the calling I have for you. You need to willingly accept it and embrace it. That might be one thing. Another might be just a gut level willingness. You, you actually feel quite happy about this or, or, or not at all resentful. He says, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and just, just has determined this in his heart, he says, keep... I won't go into the details, but he says basically you don't have to marry. Maybe you're not aflame with passion. That's another marker. He says if about pe- whether people can exercise self-control sexually, and if you're a person who can say honestly, okay, I feel that God's given me the grace for singleness. I don't have the raging desire to get married and to whatever. <laughs> you know. <laughs> then maybe God's given you that gift. It's a a single. It's a grace to be single. And then another thing is this. You are single. One of the evidences that you're called to singleness is that you are, in fact, already single, which you probably are since you were born that way. I mean to say that sometimes the gift is the condition and they, they come together. That whilst you're in... A single state, don't waste it. Don't always be wishing for the next part of your life. Recognize that God has you in his will where you are and embrace that. Use it to God's glory. People who are always pining to be in a relationship or to be married often make themselves a heck of a lot less useful in the kingdom because their head is always on that potential future and not on the here and now and not on all that God can do through you right now. Should you marry is the first big question that you should ask. Let's move on. Who should you marry? I'm not going to give you a name in case you were... (laughs) The Bible has tons to say on this, both in terms of general principles and also specific guidance in the situation of potentially getting married. I'm going to rush through three big ideas And hopefully something of this will resonate and be helpful to you. Here's my first. Be equally yoked. What do I mean? In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul's talking about this. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's talking using the picture of two animals walking side by side in a field with a yoke, a wooden yoke across their shoulders that bound them together and allowed them to walk in partnership as they For example, plowed a field. We could think today maybe of the situation of rowing a boat. Have you ever been in a rowing boat with an oar on each side? To be equally yoked in that situation would be to have two people of equal strength rowing each of the oars. If you're unequally yoked, you spin around in circles and go nowhere. If you're equally yoked, then you make progress. So, this is the picture that the Bible says. It says very clearly, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I think this is one of the most important things I could say on this subject. If you get nothing else from what I have to say today, remember this. That if you're a Christian, the one thing that you have to be absolutely certain of is that God has called you only to consider marrying another Christian. I've seen people who've gone astray on this area because they've entered into relationships with non-Christians and more often than not, in fact 100% of the time, it begins to take a toll on their walk with God. I would say it is impossible to enter into a relationship which you know that Jesus isn't pleased with and still walk closely with Jesus. Now you might come back at me and say, well, what about all those people who are married where one, per- one side is a Christian and the other side's not? I say, well, often you don't, you don't know the situation and maybe that they were married as non-Christians and one of them became a Christian. And Paul has very clear instructions on what they should do in that situation. But friends, if you're not married, that is not your situation. God has a special grace for people in that circumstance. But if you're in a situation where you are deliberately choosing to enter into a relationship with which Christ is not happy, then you cannot expect his favor upon your life and you cannot expect to have an uninterrupted walk with him. It's impossible. People in this situation often trick themselves, convince themselves that they're in control, that potentially you know, that they won't let it go too far, that they'll cut it off at the right time if necessary, and that hopefully this person that they're dating will come to believe what they believe. But I, I just want to remind you that we must never presume on God's grace. Sometimes, I'll grant you, in the most weird way, God just moves in the life of the non-believing partner and they come to faith. And I've seen it happen and you always praise God, it's a good thing. Let's not be annoyed about that. Like, oh, that shouldn't have happened. It all happened the wrong way. No, it's a wonderful thing. But the trouble is that for the Christian partner, they've, they, they, they've, they've presumed on the grace of God. And I would encourage you never to do that. It's the same reason we don't sin in other areas of our life saying, oh, God will just give me grace. Paul says we don't do that. That's not how we treat the grace of God. If you go wrong here, everything else begins to get a mess in your life. The implications of being with a person who's not a Christian are far-reaching. This is why Paul says, do not be unequally yoked. Because a yoking reminds us that the marriage relationship, if you're going in that direction, is a covenant relationship. A covenant is a promise and an oath built upon on commitment you've made to one another before God and is the deepest most binding relationship on earth. It's the same way by the way that God relates to us. The same kind of relationship, a covenant relationship. That's why the Bible talks about Christ marrying his church. So if you deliberately enter into a covenant, then it's so more much more important that you enter into one which is wise and good and helpful. To your spiritual life, when animals are yoked side by side, they become co-laborers in the field, and they're achieving the same mission together. That's what a picture of what marriage should be for the Christian—a team like Adam and Eve, a helper fit for him, you and your future spouse, laboring together for the kingdom of God. That's why when Jesus says that we should seek first the kingdom. I want to put it to you that it's impossible to seek first the kingdom and also try and join yourself to someone who doesn't share that single life goal. Your life will be split and you'll be in danger of even losing your passion. It affects your calling. It affects your children. It has eternal ramifications. And I say this, and this might surprise you. I think that this does apply, of course, to marrying an unbeliever. But I think it also applies to a Christian marrying somebody who just is lukewarm. If you love Jesus, I think you should be careful who you marry. I think, I'm not saying that you have to marry somebody who's been walking with him for a certain number of years, reached a certain amount of maturity in the faith. I don't think that's it at all. I think Matt Chandler is very helpful on this. He says it's possible for you to marry someone who's a new believer providing that you look at the trajectory of their life what's their trajectory are they a person who is walking into deeper maturity and deeper intimacy with Christ when you marry somebody who is flatlined or is walking away from Jesus it will affect you it has to affect you please bear this in mind and you know to put this in a more positive way when we talk about being equally yoked it's such an exciting thing to find somebody. You can have all kinds of things that are not in common with your life. You might not like the same food. You might not like the same movies. You might not like the same people. But if you both love Jesus the same, to the same degree and walking in the same direction in terms of the kingdom, you can have an awesome marriage. That's what equal yoking looks like. Here's my second thing on who you should marry. shouldn't really surprise you, this one, but I would say this. I think it's important to say be attracted. Now this is a hard one because there are seemingly mixed messages in the Bible. The Bible affirms sexual desire, beauty and love. God created those things. But it also speaks common sense like in Proverbs 31 where he says beauty is vain. There's a problem when your marriage is built entirely on that kind of attraction. And so because of this sort of These two mixed signals in the Bible, I think young, passionate Christians often get a little bit anxious about this, and I was one of those. So, when I was about 15, you know, I I decided when I was 10 that I was going to be a pastor. I felt that God was calling me to this, and so, as you can imagine, um, you know, I I really wanted to live a life for God. And and come 15, you know, starting to think a little bit more about the future of marriage and whether I'd get married, and I began to get slightly anxious that God was potentially going to call me to marry an ugly person. <laughs> and uh, it got to a point in my family where they start to tease me about it. They, you know, Just as you get like Benny Hinn Ministries or whatever ministries, they used to basically call it Ugly Person Ministries, <laughs> that my calling was to marry an ugly person as part of the, the ministry on my life. C.J. Mahaney jokes about this, that you know, as a Christian, when you're really concerned to please God, maybe one day... You'll be walking down the street and you'll look across the street and see somebody just not attractive in any way. And then you'll hear a voice from heaven. She's the one. <laughs> and we do worry about this kind of thing. It's the more devoted you are to God, the more you think you get anxious about this. And um, I just want to say to you, just relieve you, you know, that, that actually God made attraction. But we have to hold things in tension here. On the one hand, we need a healthy dose of suspicion about Just that raw attraction to another person. The full verse in Proverbs 31, which is talking about wives, says charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. In other words, you can be tricked by your attraction to another person. It can deceive you into making decisions that you later come to regret. Charm is deceitful. Imagine you're going into a business agreement and it looks like the product that you are buying into just looks so amazing, but the person who's selling it to you is deceiving you because they know that ultimately it's broken or it fails or it's not going to make money. That's what he's talking about here. When he says charm is deceitful, you can be swept along by a person's charm and have a hellish marriage. We've got to have a healthy dose of suspicion about that kind of attraction. It can get us in deep trouble The stories in the Bible. Samson and Delilah. You know when Delilah's going to the Philistines and trying to get, you know, arranging little deals with them whereby she tricks Samson and each time he goes to sleep, she does something to him, like binds him with ropes in order to try and take away his power. You'd think after the first or second time that he might wake up and be like, this girl might not have my best interests at heart. And then he tells her the real thing, which is to have his hair cut. If you don't know the story, it's a corker. Go and read it in Judges 16. But, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. So many stories of people whose lives have been shipwrecked by beauty. Proverbs 5 is all about being swept in by beauty, the allure of beauty. It says it will kill you if you go along with that as your sole criteria by which to be with a person. Why? Why is this negativity about it in the Bible? One is because we're not always wired to be attracted to the right things. Part of your fallen nature is that you find things attractive or that you should not find attractive. Another aspect of this is that the Bible shows us that I I think that whilst we don't really need to be convinced to marry someone we're attracted to, I think this is why the Bible speaks negatively of it, because it's trying to bring a corrective to a natural tendency, which is to rush into something with a person who you find just hot. So whilst I want us to have a healthy dose of suspicion, I think the other side has to be said, that the Bible also affirms marital love and attraction. I think about a story like Isaac and Rebecca. Well, It's a beautiful story in Genesis 24. And on. It says of Rebecca that she was, and I quote, very attractive in appearance. I like that because it's saying that beauty is not just a subjective thing. There's a degree of subjectivity to it, but if God said she's attractive, then there must be something objective about beauty. Interesting, isn't it? And it goes on to say a little bit later in that chapter that Isaac loved her. And I think that. These two things are not entirely unrelated. She was attractive, and he loved her. His heart was given to her. In "Song, in song of Songs ch- uh, chapter seven, you see it, well, all through the Song of Songs," it's just a, a, a song about love. And he says things like this: "I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit." In other words, I'm going to grab their body and have my way with my spouse." In Proverbs 5, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. And he says, it's in the context of saying, drink from your own cistern. In other words, don't go to other people's wells. You've got your well, your spouse. Drink from it and be satisfied in the love that you have in your marriage. And the only way that's possible is if there is some way in which you guys are attracted, drawn to one another in love. So obviously, this is an important thing. So let's just put aside the notion that you need to just marry someone who you find horrifically unattractive. Attraction is important, but I want to offer you three little provisos as I close this bit. I think attraction, for one thing, grows with commitment. You're probably too young for this, but there was a band called DC Talk who used to sing Love as a Verb. And it's so true. To love somebody, even in attraction love, even in erotic love, is a doing word. It's something you engage in volitionally with your will, because it does not keep going automatically. I know when I was, um, when I was dating C, it will shock you to believe this, but I had at various stages in our early relationship, I had severe doubts about whether we should get married. And sometimes questions about whether I was attracted to her. I mean, I look back now, I think, what was I thinking? It's ridiculous. But at the time, you know, it's part of being a millennial bloke is that you have crippling anxiety about whether you might, you know, find someone else that's more attractive or something like that. All these things go through guys' heads and, or anxiety about whether this is the way it should be or whether I love her the way I ought to love her or with enough deep, passionate love. And I just found that the more I was committed to her, the more my love grew toward her. So there came points in our relationship where I had to just make the decision in my heart, commit to this. And it was only actually in stepping forward like that that I found my doubts began to evaporate. And my love began to grow. It's a weird, counterintuitive thing because the culture puts it the other way around. says your commitment must be dragged along by the degree of emotion you feel. It doesn't really work like that in real life. And if that's all you have to go on, I'm afraid it's going to run out at some point. And then what will you have? The choice to love actually allows attraction to grow in a context free from anxiety and doubt. And anxiety and doubt kills love. Make a choice, in other words. That's one thing I'd say. Attraction grows with commitment. I probably haven't got time for this, but in in Rabbi Zacharias' book, I, Isaac, take thee, Rebecca, he tells a brilliant story about his older brother entering into an arranged marriage Uh, And he was living in Canada. They sent all these letters to um, an auntie in India. And they'd send back all these profiles before online dating ever took place. And just towards the moment when he'd narrowed it down to the right one who he thought he was going to marry, Ravi and all the family used to joke a lot around the dinner table about all these girls and about what was about to take place. And it got to the point where the older brother was... um, Getting, gonna, about to fly to India to go and meet this woman for the very first time. and Ravi tells a story and he says he, he says to him I don't want to challenge anything you're doing but I do have a brief question. What are you going to do when you arrive in Bombay come down the jetway and see a young woman standing there with a garland in her hand and say to yourself good grief I hope that's not her. I hope that's somebody else. Or she looks at you and thinks to herself, I hope that's not him. I hope that's his brother. What on earth will you do? Are you going to take her aside, talk it over, and then make an announcement saying, we have met, we will not be proceeding with our plans. Will you get on the telephone or write letters to everybody and say, folks, we've met, the wedding is off. My brother just stared at me. He said, are you through? Or maybe, are you through? (laughs) I told him that for the moment I was just awaiting his answer and then he said something that was absolutely defining for him. Write this down and don't ever forget it. Love is as much a question of the will as it is of the emotion and if you will to love somebody, you can. I believe that with all of my heart. It's the hardest thing to hear when you're a single person because you want to be swept up in the Hollywood romance. But it's true that the will to love somebody enables you to love them. So whilst attraction is important, bear in mind, firstly, that attraction grows with commitment. Secondly, that attraction deepens with knowledge and character. I love my wife more now than ever before in the last 12 years that we've known each other. And I say it without even a fraction of hesitation in my mind or my heart. Because I know her more now than I did when I first met I think about how shallow our knowledge of each other was even up to the point where we made our vows. And we've changed a lot over the years. But I'm more attracted to her now than ever before. And it's different in flavor and character than it was when we first got married. But it's better. It's sweeter. It's more rich and enjoyable. So don't let this be the dominating thing about anxiety, about whether you're attracted to the person enough or not. And i say this as well, a last thing on this point. Attractiveness grows as you pour love and affirmation upon the other person. In other words, the more you decide to love a person, the more attractive they become. It's a weird thing, but they grow in security in your love and they become more unguarded, more open, more delightful to you. You know all the things that separate us, like our insecurities and our guarded walls that we put up and all that, those things grow in a situation in which you are not fully sure whether you love each other, which is why cohabitation doesn't work. Because whilst people may have been drawn into it through the emotion, they don't have the commitment. And so eventually, there's always a shadow of a doubt. Will we remain committed to one another? And in that situation, attractiveness and attraction begin to die. But in a situation where you covenant to the other person, and decide that I will make you my spouse. And there is never the question that you would ever, ever separate or love another. In that situation, not only does attraction grow, but attractiveness grows as the other person grows more and flourishes more under the covenant love that you have committed to them. Who should you marry? Well, be equally yoked, be attracted. Here's my last thing. Be wise. Wisdom on this cannot be overstated. And for brevity, I just want to recommend two things. First, let your criteria be shaped by the Bible. Guys, there is plenty in the Bible on what a good wife looks like, but particularly for Proverbs 31, it demands its own preaching series. I'm not going to go into it now. Women, I think you can learn what a good husband looks like by looking at the characteristics of elders in chapters like Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3. If Paul's saying this is the kind of man that ought to be um, the quality of an elder in the church, then friends, that's the kind of person you want to marry. I'm not saying they have to be an elder, but I'm saying they ought to attain to the qualities of an elder. Why? Because a husband is going to be the pastor of your home. Together, you're going to raise your children in the faith. And if you settle for somebody who's full short on these character qualifications, then you are going to settle for disappointment in the end. There's all kinds of stuff that can be said on this, but I'd also just want to add this on wisdom when it comes to making this choice. I think it's good to submit this to other people. You may not be a particularly open person. You may not particularly enjoy the input of other people around you, but I think that we live in a rabidly individualistic society and that what the church offers you is the chance to submit this decision to other people in your life. It can be parents, if they walk in with God and they have the right things to say to you on it, it can also be your pastor. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> I think pastors and, and people in leadership in your life, like your small group leaders, they have a unique perspective. You're blinded when you're swept up in attraction to a person. They have a perspective that you want to pay attention to. I won't go into details, but I was attracted to a girl before I met C who... Um, It was because my parents had severe cautions about her, which I could not see at the time, that I never pursued it. And I was confused and I was frustrated and I was annoyed and it was all a little bit aggravating. But it was only with hindsight that I realized how very wise they were because I was blinded by what I felt at the time. So I'm not trying to preach to you something that I haven't walked in myself Part of wisdom is bringing in the voices of others even in something so intimate, so precious as the marriage relationship. Now, I want to rush through my last question. How should you marry? Three things to avoid. Avoid the sin of making an idol of love or of the beloved. It seems to me that romantic relationships have the potential to ensnare you in idolatry more than most things in our lives. Why? Because it's so precious to our heart. Our heart is moved. And an idol is basically anything you put before Jesus. So if you, you're saying to yourself, if I could have that, or if I could have them, then I'd be happy. Then there's a danger that that thing or that person is becoming an idol to you. And so it's very easy to see how the beloved can become an object of worship. In what ways? Well, think about it like this. Think about how your thought life can be dominated by a person. It's all you ever think about. And not Jesus and other aspects of your calling, your thoughts, your mind. Think about how your emotions can be determined by their behavior towards you. They smiled at me. They ignored me. And how your heart, is, your, your emotional life is so affected by How what one person treats you. And not your position in Christ. What it means to be a Christian. Think about your decision making. How so many people begin to shape all their decision making around a potential spouse. Forgetting everything that Jesus has already told them. So suddenly they're making radical changes about their life direction. About their geography. About what they feel called to do. Because they're so obsessed by this person. You think, well... Okay, I understand that when you marry a person, you've got to align your callings. However, when you're jettisoning all the things that Jesus has already called you into for that person, then really you're saying them above Jesus, aren't you? So you can see how mind, heart, will, all can be engaged with another person more than you're engaged with Christ, which I would put it to you is verging on idolatry. When you love them with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Bible everywhere tells you to put God first. It's the greatest commandment. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37 says, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I'd say that. Here's one sin to avoid. Avoid the sin of making an idol. Here's another. Avoid the sin of deliberately or carelessly stirring up love in others without right intention towards them. This is, I think, a particular hazard of the era we live in and the way people approach relationships. And this is one way in which you as Christians can stand out in a stark contrast to the world around you. What do I mean? Well, here's what I mean. There are two ways that you can end up with admirers. One is just through, you know, despite your best efforts, just because you're so really, really ridiculously good-looking. This was my problem. LAUGHTER It can be despite your best efforts. (laughs) Or you can end up with admirers because of your unwise and even deliberately flirtatious behavior. And only you can answer what's going on in your life if you find that you have admirers or someone who's loving you. And I want to say we need to strive for innocence and godliness in the way that we treat other people who are single. And in particular, it comes down to this. Whether you're awakening love in other people. How do we awaken love in people? Well, this is not rocket science. It comes down to some very basic things. The amount of attention that you give somebody, the amount of time you give them, thoughtfulness, um, the depth of intimacy, conversation, and sharing of your heart with another person. All these things tell somebody they're special to you. Touch, Sexual provocation, flirtation, one-on-one contact, whether in person or via text message, email, Facebook, all those things. Or just a failure to clarify, a failure to do the loving thing and say, hey, I'm actually not interested in you in that way. Why is this wrong? Well, the Song of Songs says, do not stir or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, there's there's a right time and season when two people are in the right stage of life and they ought to be married. But when you act towards a person to awaken love, whether in yourself or in them, out of season, out of time, or in a situation that's just inappropriate, then you're really sinning. That's why Song of Songs keeps repeating this refrain. Do not stir or awaken love until it pleases. Jesus put it like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's a cruel thing to awaken love in another person that you don't have intention towards. and Basically, you do it because it feeds something in you. There's something satisfying about having people attracted to you. But it's, at root, a selfish thing to do if you don't have right intention toward them. And so it really comes down to this. I have have a problem with a couple of behaviors that are characteristic of our society, our age, our culture that was not true across the world, not true through time. And it comes down to these two things. One is casual dating. Now, I understand that there is a degree of exploration that you have to enter into when you're considering marriage. But when I talk about casual dating, I mean stringing people along. I mean entering into dating that's sort of open-ended without any real intention or readiness to, to potentially get married to that person. When we were kids, my dad, you can ask him about it, he used to caution us, don't have a girlfriend until you're sure that you could potentially marry them. And I thought that was a really good principle by which to live. Joshua failed. When we were kids at primary school, we used to share a bedroom, and um, we'd sleep on bunk beds, and at night we had long conversations where I'd offer Joshua life advice. I, was, I guess they were my first sermons, weren't they, Josh? And um, One night he opened up to me, really confessed, I think, that he, he had a girlfriend that day. So the story was that this girl had gone to all the boys at... Morning break, and said, Will you, no, "Will you go out with me?" No. "Will you go out with me?" No. "Will you go out with me?" No. "Will you go out with me?" She got to Joshua. "Will you go out with me?" He said, "Yes." And he was the hero of the playground for about an hour and a half, and through first through the second uh, second uh, lesson of the day, and then into lunchtime, uh, she dumped him. And um, for me, I felt like this was a great sin that Joshua had committed that day, and. What unfolded was a long teaching session that night before we went to sleep on the importance, and remember we're both primary school age, but the importance that you only go out with a girl if you're sure that you could potentially marry her. I stand by that to this day. I think that saved him from a lot of heartache in the years to come. I think it's important that you don't mess people around. You don't string them along. It's it's just selfishness, isn't it, to do that? And so I have a problem with casual dating. I also have a problem. And you know how Paul says in one part of his letters, he says, this is not the Lord, this is me. And that's kind of what I want to say to you on this, but I think God backs me up, is that I I think I have a problem with intimate guy-girl platonic relationships. I've talked on this before. I always get a lot of stick, a lot of pushback, but I'm going to tell you exactly what I mean. I think that whilst we yearn for intimate friendships... There's only a certain degree of depth that's possible between a guy and a girl who are not married. And that to to imagine that you can have a relationship that's platonic and yet intimate is to, to my mind, to imagine something that's actually impossible and at worst harmful. And I'll tell you why. I think it comes down to a couple of considerations. One is this. How can you possibly know that that person isn't falling madly deeply in love with you? I don't care how many times you've clarified that you're just friends. You can never know for certain that you're not doing that to their heart. That's one consideration I'd offer you. Another is, what does it look like to others? And this matters because let's say, let's say um, Bob and, and, uh, and Sherry, great names, Bob and Sherry are really <laughs> godly people and they're also single and they also have this really deep platonic relationship. And then Jack and Mindy, younger Christians in the church, they see the friendship that they have and they think, oh, we could probably have that kind of friendship too. And and they start sort of doing this thing, and then Mindy falls madly in love with Jack, and Jack just carries on thinking, yeah, we've got the same friendship they have, blah, 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 blah. What I'm trying to say to you is that I don't think it's a healthy pattern to model to other people that you can possibly have this relationship. And here's the ultimate test. The simplest test that I think it comes down to is this. Would your behavior be appropriate if you were married to somebody else? Because I promise you Ninety-nine times out of 100, your spouse is not going to be happy with that friendship. It's going to have to change. So if, it, if it's not appropriate after you're married that you had this special friendship with a person of the opposite sex, the very reasons that your spouse is concerned about that relationship are the reasons that made it appropriate before you were married as well, made inappropriate before you were married. that it isn't as innocent as you pretend that it is. Avoid the sin of making an idol. Avoid the sin of deliberately or carelessly stirring up love in others when you you don't have the right intention toward them. Here's my last point to bring us to a close. Actually, my second to last point. We've got loads more points. Here we go. Avoid the sin of intimacy without commitment. Here's how the question is normally framed. How far is too far? There's a problem with the question which implies a desire on your part to push the boundaries of what's appropriate. When we're asking the question, how far can we go when we're dating, then you already, your mind is moving in the wrong direction. Be aware of that. I also have a problem with the answers that people offer because they tend to establish boundaries and laws which provoke sin rather than godliness. So when your mind is fixed on the barriers of where you're allowed to go with this person you're dating, that doesn't tend to foster hunger for God. It tends to foster an obsession with law-keeping and are constantly trying to push the boundaries. So I do have a problem with the question, how far is too far? So here's how I would approach it. I'd want you to be aware of two verses. Matthew 5, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you know that that applies to you even when you're engaged? When Paul's writing to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, he tells him, treat younger women as sisters in absolute purity. So here's what it comes down to. You are not married until you make vows. And up until that point, the person that you are dating is your brother or your sister in Christ. So what would you do with your brother or your sister? Do you arouse each other? I'd hope not. Enter into foreplay. That's what these things tend to be. And the issue isn't only confined, by the way, to physical boundaries and the ways that we provoke each other sexually in that sense. It it also is to do with emotional intimacy when I say avoid the sin of intimacy without commitment. Because just as a married person can have an emotional affair with somebody who they don't have any physical intimacy with, so also when you are in a relationship with a person, I think it's possible to be too intimate emotionally way before the commitment has caught up. This is why you end up with really heartbreaking breakups when like, you've, you've been on your third date and you've already told them your entire life history and everything about you and all your desires and passions and all that stuff and they're basically just still figuring out if they even like you. It's at that point when you put it all out there like, and then they break up with you that your heart is smashed because it's like I told them everything about me and then they rejected me. I I know that being cautious in dating can also kill the relationship, but I I just want to urge you that, that you have to walk a balance between commitment and intimacy, commitment and intimacy, and the two things have to go hand in hand as you're moving towards marriage. And what practically must you do then to try and marry these things together? Well, one is you can get married as soon as possible, within reason. You know, when I meet a Christian guy who's been dating a girl for years and has no clear mind on when he's going to marry her, I tend to assume that they're satisfying each other sexually somehow already. Maybe I'm just judgmental in my mindset, but I think that when you really love a girl or she loves you and you're dating, you know, you're you going to want to get married as quickly as possible. And if you're hesitating, I suggest it's because you've already been finding ways of satisfying yourselves. I think that Christians should be urged towards getting married much quicker than is the pattern in the world. That's one thing I'd say. I'd say another. Avoid situations of temptation. It's obvious, but you know in the ancient world, even to be together alone was to have people casting doubts and suspicions upon you that you were doing inappropriate things. And I think they probably were right. I think we tend to assume that the norm is to hang out together alone in houses, in bedrooms, and, and think we can get away with it. And anyone who's been in that situation knows you absolutely cannot. But we think, because it's normal, because everyone does it, it's appropriate, and it's not. Jesus says, Be holy as I am holy. And I say also this it's so important for Christians to set the bar very low on what they consider to be appropriate. Because these things are always subject to the law of diminishing returns. I remember the first time I held C's hand, soon after we started going out, my, it's maybe the same day when we officially started dating. Wow, the excitement, the rush. Now it's like, don't touch me, I need my space. <laughs> <laughs> you're so hot, get your hand off me. It changes, right? Because they have this law of diminishing returns. Things that once satisfied you no longer do, so you have to push it a little bit harder. You have to push further. So a touch becomes something else, becomes something else, becomes something else. Until so you're no longer being satisfied, but that's something else, and then you've got to go all the way and just whatever, you know. That's how it works. So, how do you stop yourself going all the way down that road? Well, you, you draw a boundary way, 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 way back here. I'm not going to tell you what those boundaries are, but I just ask you questions like, is it really possible to kiss your, the person that you're dating and not be aroused? Of course, it's not. You know, these are the kinds of ways you should be approaching this. You're called to holiness. Look at it like that. What does Jesus want of you? And I promise you this, that the more self-controlled you are on this side of marriage, the more satisfied you'll be on that side of marriage. It always works that way. Friends, this has been a marathon session. You're doing really well. I want to close off with a mere seven points. (laughs) these are just some positives and I'm going to say it in just one or two sentences each here's what I think you should be pursuing when you're asking how should you go about this whole thing towards getting married number one purity Paul says you are not your own you were bought with a price therefore honour God in your bodies that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6 so ask yourself what is purity then do it purity, integrity you are never seeking to mislead or deceive the other person We should have the utmost integrity in the way we relate to one another. Third, honor. You want to bless and protect the other person, putting them first in this relationship. Fourth, courage. This should speak to you, especially if you're a bloke. Don't let fear paralyze you. I think that is the normal these these days, that men are afraid of commitment. I hear it, I've heard it countless times. I've counseled guys, I've bullied guys, I've sat down guys in pubs and told them, you need to marry that girl. And then sometimes they do. And fear is such a killer in relationships. And for some reason, we live in a generation of blokes who are just so afraid of commitment. You contrast this with 50 years ago. My auntie had something like 20 marriage proposals from random blokes. It was a slightly different context, wasn't it? But why are we like this? I don't think that it's unrelated from... The ideas of love that we set up in our mind, the ideas of beauty that we set up in our mind, and the the constant feeling in a consumeristic culture that there might be something better available. There isn't. Sorry, she's the best you're going to get. That's not what I mean. You must be courageous. There is a sense in which faith has to be engaged in a a relationship whereby you say, I have these doubts, I have these anxieties, but everything looks right to me and to other people. I'm going to go for it. And you'll find that that is far more rewarding. Fifth, Exercise love, but not just for each other, but always for others, never becoming overly exclusive. Your relationship exists to bless other people, not just one another. There's nothing worse than a couple who get so wrapped up in themselves and their world that they forget that everyone else exists around them. Number six, submission, I've already mentioned this, to leaders for wisdom and each other practicing, as it were, the dynamics of a married life even before you get there in terms of mutual submission and what that looks like. And finally, worship. This is my last point. Does being with this person cause me to love Jesus more? If you can answer that question rightly, everything else is going to be fine. Amen.